Hello and welcome to the IC Tech Talks podcast, part of the IC's continuing professional development program. I'm Mark Hansford, Director of Engineering Knowledge here at the ICE. And I'm Alex Wynne, the IC's Knowledge Content Director. A growing coalition of countries has pledged to achieve net zero emissions by 2050 to avert the worst impacts of climate change and preserve the planet. The United Nations forecasts that by 2050, the world's population will have risen by 2 billion, reaching a total of 9.7 billion. And it is also estimated that 85% of the buildings you see today will be still standing by 2050. The challenge facing professionals working in the built environment is vast. Building and construction are together responsible for 39% of all carbon emissions worldwide, while operational emissions account for 28%. But while tasked with reducing our emissions in order to combat climate change, we also need to ensure that the world's population has adequate housing and infrastructure so that society can continue to function. We must employ many tactics in a truly holistic approach if we are to address all of these challenges. One of these tactics is retrofitting current infrastructure, transforming existing buildings and assets so they can be reused, often avoiding large capital investments while minimising the disruption and carbon involved in the construction of new assets. One project that demonstrates best practice in retrofit and highlights the important role of a civil engineer in the process is the Mayfield Depot project in Manchester, England. Depot Mayfield is a former rail depot that has been converted into a performance venue hosting arts, music, uh, industry, culture and community events and is the anchor to a whole new neighbourhood being created in Manchester. Engineering firm Civic Engineers was employed as the lead consultant undertaking a detailed technical assessment of the complex asset, then 100 years old, and developing a master plan for the conversion of the entire site. So today, we're delighted to have with us as a guest, the person who can explain far more about the project than we can, Stephen O'Malley, Chief Executive and Co-Founder of Civic Engineers. Now, just for background, Civic Engineers uh, was a practice founded in just 2013 for the scratch purpose of creating better places like Depot Mayfield, and has now grown to 170 people operating across four locations in the UK. Stephen has a passion for engineering healthy, active and attractive urban neighbourhoods and creating public spaces that have a positive impact on the environment and enable people to lead healthier and happier lives. He is a High Street Task Force expert, sits on the new London Architecture Expert Panel for Wellbeing and is chair of IC North West. So it's really great to have you joining us here today, Stephen. Welcome. And Mark, uh, thank you, Alex. Thanks very much. Thanks for the invitation. Delighted to be here. Great. So look, first, this is clearly a podcast, Stephen. So perhaps first of all, you could just help our listeners sort of visualise the the scale and and I think, in truth, the, the brilliance of, of what Depot Mayfield is. Well, Depot Mayfield is uh, an intrinsically sustainable site in this 25 acres, immediately adjacent to Piccadilly Station in the centre of Manchester. So it's been interesting that this really... A strategically located site has been overlooked for many, many decades. It's been derelict for about 40 years, but has had quite an illustrious development past. It's It's got a lot of Victorian heritage and archaeology. And then more recently has been repurposed. Some of the landscape in and around the depot itself have been repurposed for typical distribution warehousing and, and other relatively low value activity. And then the depot itself has just been vacant. Its last use was as a goods distribution warehouse of sorts back in the, the sort of late 80s. 
so from its very powerful start in 1904 and its function and role within the network as, as, a, as a railway depot, it was in a bit of a sorry state in, uh, by the time we got to 20, 2013. Anyway, what was really interesting is um, the depot's reemergence from that very quiet extended period was when the Manchester International Festival chose it as a venue to host one of its guerrilla performances in 2013 for uh, Adam Curtis on Massive Attack. And I had the privilege of working with, uh, with the producers and the festival to enable that concert to take place, uh, which was no mean feat to get a building of that scale uh, in that condition, uh, ready and safe for 2,000 people a night to turn up and, and uh, take part in this fantastic performance over a, a two-week period back in, back in 2013. Anyway, uh, it sort of placed itself in the mental map of Bancunians at that point, and there was a variety of initiatives that attempted to try and take the project and that part of, of, of the city forward from there. And that culminated in uh, a joint venture between the developer, you and I, alongside the uh, Manchester City Council, Transport for Greater Manchester, and London Continental Railways, the network rail arm of, of, of uh, assets of this type across the, across the UK. And that joint venture then came forward with this really ambitious master plan uh, for this 25-acre site, which is looking at, it's a new neighbourhood in Manchester. So it's got a full suite of mixed uses that you'd hope and expect to see that sort of arguably fits the brief for what in current current uh, parlance is described as a 15-minute neighbourhood or a compact neighbourhood. So you have residential, you have leisure, you have uh, offices, office space, and the centrepiece of this new neighbourhood is a six-and-a-half-acre park. So uh, this these ingredients, these components come together to provide what would be this uh, really forward-facing neighbourhood in this amazing city of Manchester. Fantastic. And, and the actual depot itself, is it's, it's open now? You, people inspired by this, this podcast can go, can go there, go play there and entertain themselves there? You, you, absolutely. And um, Broadwick Live are the organisation that have been uh, leading the way on repurposing that building and breathing new life and vitality into it and, and, and repositioning it. Uh, it offers a, this cathedral-like experience for, for everybody, but engineers in particular, I think, will get a particular kick out of all of the original, authentic features of the of the depot are still fully intact and preserved and presented. And actually, it's that aesthetic and that character that really adds to the charm and experience of the place. But the scale of it is monumental. And while there's two major chambers uh, in the depot, one is uh, used as and sort of occupied by Freight Island, as it's known, and they host a whole series of different events and have a whole series of different concessions and bars and restaurants in that space on a rolling program. And then in the Eastern Chamber, uh, which is the home of the Warehouse Project, uh, which is a very famous nightclub. I'm not just, I'm sure across the UK, but hosts up to maybe 10,000 dancers on a regular basis amongst other performances. I think... Um, uh, there's been some phenomenal acts that have that have performed there over the last two years or so. so. Perhaps not your typical civil engineering project, but if you go back to those early days again and think about, was it clear how civic engineers was going to approach the project initially with all that complexity? And I suppose even more specifically, was it really clear from the start how much of the original site was to be re retained or retrofitted? Uh, not necessarily. I, th I think... Um, 
these projects, regeneration projects, any of this scale are measured in terms of decades, not, not, not in more sort of single digit years. Uh, so the master plan is a concept uh, which was driven by Studio Grey West, SEW, uh, in close collaboration with you and I, and they've got a long-standing collaborative relationship and a very successful one. And they brought forward this vision for this place, and that was very much embraced by the the, the city leaders at the time who who championed that vision for that place. And, and this neighbourhood sat within this suite of neighbourhoods that's coming forward in the, the broader city makeup. And understanding the composition of the city in that sense has been testament to Manchester's own vision of its leaders, which is which is pretty special, as we all know. Um, however, uh, having set out that strategy in the form of this strategic regeneration framework, as it's known in the jargon, um, it then turned and pivoted towards delivery. And the city were very keen, as were the developer, to try and transform the perceptions of the place, which is how Freight Island and, and, and their role in that presentation of the place and, and people's perceptions of the place started. However, in terms of physical change, it was the park that was the driver for that. And when we got involved with the park, we were really examining what were its strongest attributes, what were the most authentic features of that landscape that we could uh, revitalize and sort of represent and, and showcase, not in a way that is going, to, is going to bleach the landscape and start from scratch, but actually it's, it's it's using a more emotionally intelligent response and bringing together a wide variety of, 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 of skills and expertise to open up and explore what that meant in reality. So let me give you an example. Uh, so the River Medlock uh, is rooted across the plan and for large sections of its of, of its route, uh, it had been culverted and over the, t over the top of these culverts had been placed some of these buildings I'd made reference to earlier in terms of uh, warehouses and very simple steel portal frame sheds. And in terms of dealing responsibly with the issues related to the likes of contamination and water management, we wanted to advocate a nature-based approach as a first choice preference in all of the decisions that were coming forward for the, for, for the project. So daylighting of the river meant that actually people could begin to enjoy this natural acid that traversed this uh, this urban brown field landscape and in addition to that improve biodiversity uh, deal uh, more responsibly with uh, extreme weather and also become this really attractive natural feature within the landscape so that became the ordering feature within the conversation well that's that is fantastic and that does sound amazing um but uh, talk us a little bit through the, some of some of the technical things that you, you've had to do. I, I, you know, clearly we're keen to explore and, and discuss the sort of the, the role in in these kind of projects for for all shapes and sizes of civil engineer. And and clearly the the sort of technical assessment, I can I'm sure was was a very integral part of the program to make sure that the, the building and and the broader site could be used in the way that you needed to do. So. What, what kind of kind of skills do you need to bring to, to, to this kind of project in that way? Well, indeed, uh, and, and while having a holistic view is critical to, to bring together these different strands, there's no escaping the need, uh, quite rightly, for the expertise and specific knowledge that certain disciplines bring to the conversation. So, for example, uh, the geotechnical assessment was absolutely vital. The archaeological assessment was just as important. There was a lot of from breweries to bathhouses, from from churches to 
Victorian homes, there's a full suite of, of buried features uh, hidden in this landscape that we had to carefully un uncover and catalogue and, and, and record on the journey to the delivery of the park. Um, understanding the hydrodynamics and the profile of the river in terms of its function within the wider catchment of the Medlock was, was vital uh, and the hydro hydrodynamics associated with that. But also then with the depot itself, uh, it is 100 years old and it was built to withstand some fairly intense performance criteria with steam trains coming in on the upper platforms and disgorging their contents down into the into the chambers below. So the, the building itself was quite robust, but had it deteriorated over time. So there was an extensive piece of research to do to, to, to really to really get to where under the skin of the building and ensure that those uh, those qualities hadn't depreciated or, 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 or perished over time. So bringing together that range of materials expertise, geotechnical expertise, hydrological expertise into one coherent narrative was, was, was vital. And as you went on to develop the master plan for the site, was it quite clear to you very early on the idea that you would marry together the more biodiversity elements with the industrial old? Or did you have other sort of guiding principles that you wanted to establish? Well, I, I, I used the term earlier on in this short conversation about emotionally intelligent, and I think that's, I think that's a really, in my mind, a really good description of the way we want to go about these projects wholesale, and that's recognising the the chronology and the history and the narrative that already exists in these places, which is phenomenal and brings with it a real richness. We've had some of this experience over working with um, in Stratford over at, at, at the Olympic Stadium on Canal Park and working in Hackney Wick. And we employed a similar sort of low engineering approach to that project. Uh, and and, and I, I'd like to think that that's a continuous, uh, contiguous arc of thought that reaches across the work that we do more broadly as a practice. However, in this instance and in, in um, Mayfield in particular, there was a number of features some of which were from the Victorian area, but some were more modern. And we appraised them and analysed them as complete structural components. And we sought to reuse those components in the end game. So there was some fantastically ornate, ornate if you're an engineer perhaps, but, but, but those hidden ornate qualities were things that we recognised when we started to appraise the physical reality of what was on the site. And actually through some careful analysis and, 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 and checks, We've repurposed them to use as new bridges within uh, within the delivered park, which perhaps highlights a, a, another key difference here, which is about risk engagement rather than risk aversion. And I think what we need to do as a profession is recognise that these projects, for all of our attempt to try and standardise standardise and codify our approach, and that's in many respects that's a sensible and practical and efficient thing to do. We've also got to be much more mindful that. We should start with a blank sheet of paper in many instances, particularly in these complex brownfield environments, and be much more responsive to the physical attributes and the stories and narratives that's bound up and wrapped up in these places to bring them together in, and, and turn them into a forward-facing uh, conversation. And there's a huge amount of value, I feel, in, in, in doing that and showcasing that. If low engineering isn't already a catchphrase, I think we should make that be. Um, <laughs> And all that time that you're working on this project, I suppose, the conversation around the growing climate crisis and um, carbon reduction targets in our world more specifically became a bit more real. How 
How much did that start to influence or from the start influence and grow during the project? I, I, again, I contend that being um, environmentally responsible is a, a core driver, a core plank in the way we would want to operate as engineers wholesale and repurposing those features meant that we were minimizing the amount of carbon that the project would generate uh, because there's embodied carbon already incorporated into those features. So utilizing that, that uh, already expended energy in a new way is, uh, is, is a very environmentally responsible approach to, to, to delivering this. And actually, again, when people walk around the park and experience the park, uh, and I use that word experience in, in, a, in a very purposeful manner because when you're standing there and you can appreciate all these nuanced and subtle uh, qualities on your experience in the park, that's what drives the whole value. That's why you would want to go there. That's why you would want to divert your route. That's why you'd want to cycle through there. That's why you want to have your lunch there. It's all these really fine, uh, subtle, subconscious qualities to these spaces that make a difference. And I think having that carbon story and people recognizing that you're not attempting to try and dress something or or, or, or uh, a cosmetic intervention in the landscape just for the sake of shielding something. It's, it's, it's raw in certain places, but actually that rawness brings with it a, um, quite a, a fresh dynamic. And potentially widens its appeal and use from what you're suggesting there as well, the, the breadth of people who are experiencing it is broadened all the while. Yeah, because it's 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 a Mancunian story, isn't it? You know, you're not importing an identity from somewhere else and saying, okay, we're gonna we're gonna create this shroud of uh, of of a a perceived story from somewhere else. This is actually what's happened here, and the you know these little touch points. It doesn't have to be a huge amount, uh, and each time you go back to the park, you might recognise something that you hadn't seen before, and that in itself it enriches the story. I, I have had the, the privilege of working with uh, the artist Dan Dubowitz over in Ancoats in Manchester uh, on a regeneration project there in the uh, mid-2000s. And that experience with Dan and the rest of the team uh, really did open my eyes and help me understand how important those sort of choices were in terms of telling those stories and making sure that the place is representative of the communities that had once occupied them. Well, I mean... I'm going to feel a bit guilty now because I'm I'm loving all this sort of a talk about the sense of the place you're creating and 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 the real kind of vision that's gone into this thing. But I'm going to ask you something reasonably quite quite technical now. Um, I'm clearly I'm an engineer, so I'm asking all the technical <laughs> questions. But one one thing that struck us and and stand and stands out on the project is this is was the first commercial development to use concretine. I think that's the correct way of saying, isn't it? A greener, cheaper concrete alternative. Um, but um actually brings um, graphene into into the equation, which is something that has fascinated, I know, civil engineers for quite some time as a potential material that it seems to have invented in Manchester, I believe, and, and now is finding, 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 finding a use in infrastructure. So talk a bit about that. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's fantastic that graphene was uh, discovered and, 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 I guess, invented in that sense in Manchester, which is, uh, gives us great satisfaction in saying uh, or attempting to employ it then in concretine in Manchester. So concretine in itself, born out of the Graphene Institute in Manchester, uh, was the, our client at Mayfield that introduced us to the entrepreneurs doing the research and testing on the product about two years ago, guy, guys called Rob Hibbert and uh, Alex McDermott of Nationwide Engineering. 
And uh, having worked with them since and exploring its application at Mayfield Depot, it culminated in the design and the construction of this uh, graphene slab in the depot. In the depot is a roller and ice uh, a roller rink and ice rink. Uh, it's the first suspended slab using concretine in the world. And um, concretine as an admixture in this application has meant that, and it's a relatively small dose of liquid graphene in the mix, and it improves the uh, and accelerates the hydration process, certainly in the early stages of the curing process, but it also goes on to increase the strength of the concrete, both tensile and compressive, which of course means that uh, there's less cement needed uh, to, to achieve the same structural properties. In addition to that, the slab cast at Mayfield, which we'll continue to monitor, uh, has reduced uh, crack controlling rebar. So that again, reduces the amount of uh, carbon needed to uh, achieve the same sort of levels of performance. Great. And is, is that getting interest from other from what engineers, civil engineers, structural engineers around, around the UK, around the world? Uh, it, 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 yeah, it, for sure. I think everybody's fascinated to see how these uh, innovations actually perform in reality. So being the first to, to, to explore and to innovate on, on these subjects is inevitably going to bring quite a lot of attention. And actually the IC Northwest awarded the first innovation prize in the IC awards this last year for concretine and, and the, the two guys from uh, Meshwad Engineering came up to collect the award and that was evident of or sort of supporting the idea that these types of initiatives are things that we need to explore and develop to address the major issues that we're confronted with with regards to environmental protection and standards. With that do you think it requires a different or a newer modern set of engineering skills to be able to work with that new product um, get it to your projects and, um, and maybe does it speak a little to what you were mentioning earlier about risk? I, I think it very much plays into that narrative and you, you know, there's a lot of people involved in these projects and it takes, it takes a courageous client at the end of, at the end of the day, somebody has to put their hand in their pocket and pay for these features. And then ultimately, notwithstanding the fact, obviously anything that we design and take responsibility for, uh, we, we, we warrant and ensure, but nevertheless, it's, it's those organizations that rely on the performance of these features for their buildings and their spaces to deliver the things that they're expecting. So it, it does require a, uh, a, a trusting and high confidence atmosphere or, or sort of team connection for the, for these projects. And do you get the, does, does legislation standards, do, do, do they support you enough when it comes to, you know, trying to be inventive and, and creative in these kind of ways? No. <laughs> no, might say that. no, but no, but then, I mean, that's the very definition of innovation in some respects, isn't it? You know, uh, re regulations and standards tend to follow up. And as we observe certain features in operation, it provides us with the empirical evidence to take what might be a hypothesis and execution delivery. And there's a whole, there's a whole series of steps there that everybody listening to this podcast will only be too familiar with in terms of where risk can be introduced, whether that's quality of workmanship or weather conditions, or there's a whole raft of variables that might apply uh, in between those two points of conception and, 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 and delivery and then performance and execution. But that's okay. I, 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 you know, we've got to, we've got to have the courage to take these risks because the status quo is not going to deliver the change and, and, and the results that we need at the speed at which we need them. I'd make a, a, another point. Uh, which I think is related to that. And that's about 
our profession uh, as engineers and we've we've touched on the absolute value and importance of technical excellence and there's no substitute for that we that's that's got to be the, the the beacon on the horizon that we navigate towards however we've also got to look outside of, of of individual strands and disciplines of engineering to get this much more collaborative holistic approach and in some cases i think we're, we're going to have to explore new or more nuanced relationships between the different strands so for example uh when i'm thinking about urban infrastructure at the moment and thinking about how we deal with planting and civil engineering and what we end up with is hard working horticulture so it at the moment it doesn't kind of fit in any one particular camp and if we're trying to deal with the extreme weather that we're increasingly experiencing whether that's flooding or heat we need to think about how planting and green infrastructure blue infrastructure sustainable urban drainage how all of that sits cycling infrastructure how all of these things sit within our towns and cities and i think that our profession civil engineering in its broadest sense uh, needs to re-examine and, and and explore how civil engineers deal with highway engineers, deal with drainage engineers, and and, and integrate them in, in a much more uh, fundamental way. I think you may have just answered my next question. That sounds like it was one of the many lessons that you think could be learned from this project that could be taken to another project. Is is that perhaps your one takeaway, or is there one other lesson that is different from that that you think would be valuable to anyone working on another retro retrofit project elsewhere that is common a common thread um i think yes uh that that uh a slight risk here now of laboring the point about risk uh but there is clearly a need a preparedness you, you've you've got to assemble the right team and in that team there has to be this confidence in each other and the trust in each other's judgment and that's born out of perhaps longevity of relationships or previous working relationships or, 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 or pedigree, whatever, whatever it may be. But even then, as we all know, uh, it turns into relationships and how the, the dynamics, the conversation, the, the um, dialogue, the communication between those different parties actually works in practice. Because if you've got one body within that team that's generating the, the, the drive and propensity to engage with these types of risks, uh, and others that aren't prepared to support you in that, it, it will drive down that preparedness to, uh, to, to explore and to, to challenge. And, 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 and that's going to limit our ability to make the changes that we need. And if you had the chance to do a similar project elsewhere again, anything you would do differently? There's a, there's a, there's a real awkwardness there because at the start of this stage of the delivery of the park in particular, uh, time was the major major issue and people were quite rightly wanting to see results and there's a fixed budget so thinking or anticipating this kind of question today I was ranging over this in my mind and uh, and, and the reality is when you look back and, and the, the, the park at, for all uh, for all intents and purposes has now achieved the things that it had set out to deliver at, at the start of this particular stage of the, of the construction bear in mind there's a lot more stages to come uh, but in delivering this piece it seems to have delivered against the, the the objectives that it had set had set itself those ambitious targets at the beginning and that was in light of those constraints around time and and, and money so perhaps maybe maybe the fact that there isn't enough time can just drive the need for people to say okay get on with it make it happen do it and maybe that 
maybe you can overthink things at times as well. So I'm sorry, I don't have a crisp, clean uh, response to that question. Nice. No, very nice to hear about a project which which um, has delivered everything it set out to do. I mean, that's, that's very encouraging. And, and I think to, to the point, I don't think you have laboured the point about risk awareness. I think if you do go into these projects, because clearly there's, there's inherent risk in projects with brownfield sites, dealing with historic structures, there are risks inherent there, aren't there? So, but as you point you've made, you, you go into these projects, eyes open and willing to, you know, test the codes, stretch the codes, stretch what's possible, but do so aware of the risks that you're taking on. Clearly it can be made to work and work in a really brilliant way as, as has been achieved. So I guess, yeah, congratulations to all, all involved and uh, what a fantastic project and an ongoing um, community you're building there. So, so look, thank you, Stephen, for for joining us and and sharing that um, your expertise and your experience um, up there. And it's been a real pleasure to hear your thoughts and gain your insight more broadly into the into the sort of the future of of retrofitting and place building um, more broadly. So thank you very much. Thank you indeed, Stephen, and a big thanks to you too, our listeners, for tuning in. You can learn more about this topic and discover more podcasts, videos, and other resources on the IC Knowledge Hub which is accessible via ic.org.uk. New content is launched throughout the year, so do keep a lookout. Now, all that's left for us to do is sign off, thank our guest. I've been your co-host, Alex Wynn. And I've been your other co-host, Mark Hansford. This was an IC Tech Talks podcast. We hope you can join us again soon.